Welcome, and this is the Valley View Friends Church Sunday Morning Podcast. Thank you for joining us. We are so glad that you are listening in today. As God's people, we are concerned with reaching and restoring hearts and homes with Jesus. If you want to learn more about our church, look us up on our website at valleyviewfriendschurch.org. Please subscribe to always get the next podcast. So, if you're a fan of the American Wild West, you'll find in a museum in Deadwood, South Dakota, an inscription that was left by a beleaguered prospector, and it reads like this, I lost my gun, I lost my horse, I'm out of food, the Indians are after me, but I've got all the gold I can carry. Perhaps that prospector mixed up his priorities. And that inscription is asking us to think about what's important to us. What is most important to you in life? And I challenge you to take a moment and make a list of the most important things to you. Could be your job, your family, dreams you have, people in your lives, your health. Could be any number of things that are your priority, where you put your energy, your time, your thoughts. And today I want to take a few minutes to look at Jesus' answer to the question, which commandment is the greatest? He's being challenged. He's being asked about his own priorities when it comes to following God's law. Which one does he think is top in the list of priorities? In his answer, Jesus declares that we are to love God and love our neighbor. And this declaration demands our own honesty about our priorities. Our priorities reveal whether or not we live in God's kingdom. So let's read the text. It's in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, verses 28 through 34. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating, noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, and he asked him, Of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, Jesus answered, is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one, and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, and with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him, meaning Jesus, any more questions. You're probably familiar with the phrase, love your neighbor as yourself, or even love God, love others. Have you ever wanted to ask the question, well, how do I love my neighbor as myself? It can be tricky just to know how just to know how to love someone. Jesus is asked which command is the greatest and he gives two, a complex answer. What on earth is going on here? And so let's take a moment and look at the story. Our text begins with a teacher of the law hearing Jesus debating in the temple in Jerusalem with some Sadducees, some Pharisees, and even some Herodians. They're trying to trick Jesus because they want to get rid of him. If they can trick him, they can get the people to be against him, and then they can uh, no longer have him as a thorn in their side. And they want to get rid of Jesus because he has just told a story in the temple that points out the failings of the spiritual leaders of Israel. They have turned 
Israel into their personal kingdom instead of letting it be God's kingdom. They don't like this teaching of Jesus, and now they want to get rid of him. So Jesus answers their tricks, their traps, and their questions, and he answers them marvelously. And then comes another teacher of the law. I'm not sure if he was trying to trap Jesus or if he was impressed with Jesus. And this teacher of the law, a specialist in law's commandments, challenges Jesus with actually what is a common question. Of all the commandments, which one is the greatest? It's a loaded and very difficult question, but it is a common one. This teacher of the law knows that God's word, he knows this word backwards and forwards. He knows all the commandments, and he's asking Jesus to pick out the most important one. Think for a moment. Which of the Ten Commandments is the most important one to you? Which one would you say is the most important? I would contend if you start pulling just one out, the others begin to fall apart. But the teacher of the law knows that there are more commandments than just the ten, because, well, they counted them, and they found that in God's law there were 613 commands that should be followed. And of these 613 commands, it was discerned that 248 of them were positive things that you should do, and 365, uh, I don't know if that's supposed to be days of the year, but there are 365 prohibitions, things you should not do. Don't do this, it would be bad for you. And the teacher of the law says, well, which one of these 613 is the most important? Maybe it wasn't such an easy question after all. But there's more. Because I told you that this was a common question in Jesus' day. It was a loaded question to find out where a person stood in their beliefs. At this time, there were two main schools of thought when it came to how a Jewish person should live out their faith. And these two schools were based on two prominent teachers. Their names were Shammai and Hillel. Shammai, in all of his teachings, declared this about the greatest commandments. He said, the two greatest commandments were to love your God, love God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might, and obey the Sabbath. That was Shammai's teaching, and it was centered on obedience, do these things. And he thought that obedience was the weightiest call in every situation. Hillel said it was like this, love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And then he would cite Leviticus 19.18, which reads like this, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone, anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. And then this is God speaking, so the verse ends with, I am the Lord. Well, that sounds familiar, right? Jesus gives Hillel's answer, love God, love your neighbor. But he simplifies it. Because he says it's not just about grudges, it's not just about revenge, it's not about uh, loving people that are like you, that are your countrymen, country people that live in the same nation as you, but loving anyone who is your neighbor. See, the teacher of the law is actually asking Jesus a question um, not unlike one we might ask today of people. Are you a conservative or are you a liberal? Do you believe in this or do you believe in that? And in this pandemic time, we might ask the question, do you believe in vaccines or not? Or maybe if you're a sports fan and here we are in Ohio, you might say, are you a Browns fan or are you a Bengals fan? This teacher is asking Jesus to take a side. 
And Jesus does give an answer, and it's Hillel's answer, but he startles the teacher because his answer is a little different from what is expected. Let's dig just a little deeper into the two commands that Jesus names as the most important. The first one is, well, simple. It's love God. But it's not actually that simple. It actually comes from a very complex scripture. Jesus begins with one of the most precious scripture verses that the Jewish people had. They called it the Shema. And they called it the Shema because Shema is the first word in Hebrew in the verse. It comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. And it reads like this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commands that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, and when you walk along the road, and when you lie down, and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands, and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses, and in and on your gates. These verses are considered one of the most important verses of the Bible to the Jewish people. They begin every synagogue worship service with these verses. All Jewish men start their day praying these verses. They write them down and they place them in those small leather boxes on their clothing. They wear them. They insert them into the doorposts of their houses. Jesus gives an answer that starts how everybody in Israel would have expected. Of course, this is the greatest commandment. You know, it's good for us to ask ourselves how much we believe these words and how we prioritize them in our lives. Do we understand God as one? You know, as Christians, we believe in the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, three in one. God is one, yet he's three distinct persons. And I think the greater part of what we read in Deuteronomy is that God is to be the only God that we have in our lives and that he is priority number one. Most Americans, and really most people, struggle to keep God in the first position of priorities in their lives. The founder of McDonald's, Ray Kroc, was asked by a reporter one time what he believed in, and he said, I believe in God, my family, and McDonald's. And then he added, and when I get to the office, I reverse the order of those three. And I think we're all a little like that. Many Christians say God is most important in their life, and then the situation changes. The challenge is keeping God number one while we're at work, while we're striving for a dream or an ambition, while we're raising a family, while we're building a marriage, while we're at school or we're with our friends, because we want to sometimes make those items number one and God number two. Do not trade away what is best for something that is good. Because we can fill our lives with a whole lot of good things and miss the most important. God is to be number one in our lives. The Shema says we believe in God and we are to love God within our, with our entire being described. And he describes our entire being in four areas, the heart, the soul, the mind, and our strength. And I, am, and I appreciate that all-encompassing dimension of, the, of this command. Our heart, we often associate with our personhood. We've talked about that over the last several weeks. It's who I am deep down inside. The mind is our thought life, and it's what our thought life is filled with. And is your thought life filled with love for God, love for others, or is it filled with something else? Does, is your mind dominated by fears? Is your mind dominated by dreams you have, by something you really desire? Are you loving God with your mind? Sometimes people believe it's okay to think something bad about a person as long as they don't say it. 
have spread a rumor themselves. But that's not how it works. This is not how it works if we surrender our minds to Christ. We are to take cap to take captive our thoughts and give them to God so we love him with our mind, not just our actions. And then that third dimension is strength. And really we can read in that strength, these are our activities, our actions, the things we do. And does the way we spend our energy reflect our love for God and our love for others? That's a question to ask. Does do our actions represent that love? It's amazing what an action can do, how it can change a moment. Story goes, a lady named Elsa, she no longer remembers what the argument was about, but it began before breakfast one morning, and it continued as her husband Steve started off to work. How can you just go off like that, cried Elsa. We haven't settled a thing. And then Steve did what few men as ambitious and driven as Steve would do. He turned around. And he went to the phone, and he canceled all of his appointments for that day. And he said, or his actions told Elsa, that their relationship meant more than business meetings. That he's a married man, and he would make a lot of sacrifices of work for their love. His actions described his love. Are you wanting a stronger relationship with God? If you want that, look at where you're putting your activity. Because if you're putting your activity, your actions, everywhere else but God, you're going to struggle in your relationship with God. Let's go to that second commandment for a few minutes. Love your neighbor. This is where Jesus kind of changes the situation. Yes, it was an answer that was expected, but he changes it a little bit. Because Jesus does something radical here. He drops the qualification of love your fellow countrymen. Love the people that are in the same boat as you. Love the people who are like you. And he simply says, love your neighbor as yourself. He in effect says their color shouldn't change your love. Their nationality does not change your love. Their beliefs do not change your love. Their lack of love towards you does not change your love towards them. And this is one of the reasons the gospel has spread so quickly across the world. Christ-like love is the most convincing witness anyone can give to another person about who God is. Because it's easy to dislike those you don't agree with. It's easy to give the cold shoulder, shoulder to those who look differently. It's easy to disassociate with those who oppose your beliefs. But it speaks volumes when we love them anyway when we serve and care regardless of creed. In the end, it makes others rethink what they believe because they're confronted with the truth and the love of God. The order of the two greatest commandments, loving God comes first, and God must be our first priority. And these, these, the order is very important, and it must take priority over loving others. But be careful. Some would say, well, if it takes priority over loving others, then that means loving God replaces loving others. And that's not what is meant at all. What it means is that to love others properly, we must love God and know Him rightly. The standard that God has set for me and you when it comes to loving our neighbors is much higher than the standard we could set for ourselves. And if we want to meet that standard, we have to get to know God first. You know, our culture is obsessed with the phrase, love your neighbor. But what they mean is, let them be. Let them feel good. 
but by ourselves, none of us are very good at love. If we go by God's standards, love for our neighbors will be much more sacrificial on our part. You can do what a person wants, and you can make them feel good for a moment, but real love does what is best for a person, even even if it is not what they want at that moment. We do what will serve them and bless them for eternity. That is real love. Serving them and blessing them in a way that affects their eternity. Loving your neighbor can only truly happen when we love God. And if we love God rightly, we will love our neighbors very well. Jesus' answer to what command is the greatest impresses this teacher of the law. But the conversation doesn't end there. The teacher of the law repeats back the two commands to Jesus and then says that doing them is better than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. This is a strange statement because it because sacrifice is important to the Jewish people. It's how they knew their sins were atoned for before God. And, and his teacher of the law is saying, well, if you love God and if you love your neighbors, that's better than these sacrifices, better than atonement. What's going on here? And then Jesus responds with the final statement, you are not far from the kingdom of God. That is a strange statement, and we need to grab onto it for a few moments. Jesus turns this question, this question and answer time, into something else. He makes it something much deeper. It's not just a challenge to who he is. You see, we often read those words, love God and love others, and think, well, that's our duty. I've got to do that. But there's a lot more going on in these two commands that Jesus talks about. Most of the time, we'll haul out that phrase, love God and love others, when we want to point out how someone is not loving others well. It should not be used this way. We need to turn these commands onto ourselves. Yes, we are being asked to love God, and yes, we are being asked to love others. But even more so, Jesus is asking a different question. He's asking the question, whose kingdom do you belong to? And he's telling this teacher at the end of all this, you know, you're closer. You are close. You're not in the kingdom yet, but you're closer. You're closer than you think. He's trying to get this teacher of the law to think about which kingdom he belongs to. So what's going on with that final statement? You're close, you're close, closer to the kingdom of God than you know. Remember, Jesus is being tested. The religious leaders want to trap Jesus. They want to get rid of him. I want to remind you that they want to get rid of him because Jesus had just told a story that got them all fired up in the temple. And I want to read that story to you for a moment. It's in Mark chapter 12, same chapter. It's in Mark 12, verses 1 through 12. And it reads like this. Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, and he put a wall around it, and he dug a pit for the winepress and built a watchtower. And then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them, and they struck this man in, on the head and treated him shamefully. He, still, he sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son 
whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, They will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him. The inheritance will be ours. So they took him, and they killed him, and they threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this passage? Haven't you read this passage of scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders looked for a way to arrest Jesus, because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. We just read a story about an owner of land, a master who makes a wonderful vineyard. He plants it, and then he brings in some tenants, some renters, who are to enjoy the vineyard, but they are to remember that he is still the owner. Eventually, these tenants think the vineyard is theirs. They've forgotten that it really belongs to someone else. They think they deserve it. And every time the master sends a servant, they either beat the servant or they kill him, and eventually they even kill the master's son, thinking that they'll get the vineyard then. They're invited to the master's kingdom, his vineyard. But they try to take it for their own kingdom. They're trying to live in the wrong kingdom. They've forgotten who the real king is. That's what's happening in that passage. Now, remember that verse that Jesus quoted when he started, when he was asked which command is the greatest, and he quoted the Shema? I want to go back there for a moment. I want to connect these together. Because the Shema is followed by a couple of scripture verses that are very important for us to hear right now. It's there in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 10 and 11, 10 through 12. And this is the reason that God gives why they are to remember these words all day. Why are they to talk about them with their children? Why are they to put them on their foreheads and put them in the doorposts of their houses? And he says this in Deuteronomy 6, 10 through 12. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you a land with large, flourishing flourishing cities that you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things that you did not provide, wells that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. Then, when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery." God is warning Israel to remember who their king is, the Lord, to remember that they are his people and his kingdom. And he's warning them that the blessings of the land will lull them into forgetting whose kingdom they really live in. And Jesus is telling these religious leaders in the temple that they are chasing their own kingdoms. But if they can truly return to loving their God, with their whole being, their mind, their soul, their heart, their strength, if they can love their neighbors, they will begin to surrender their false kingdoms and they will draw near to God's kingdom. And we too, we build our own kingdoms. We want a good life. We want a retirement, recognition. We want our families to be successful. We want control. We want to be in charge. But we were not made to build our own kingdoms. We were made to live in God's kingdom. 
William Law says this, If you have not chosen the kingdom of God first, it will in the end make no difference what you have chosen instead. We were made for God's kingdom. Dallas Willard says this, in case you're wondering what the kingdom of heaven is, he says this, the kingdom of heaven is where what God wants, uh, this is a little tricky to read, Dallas Willard says this, the kingdom of heaven is where what God wants done is done. It's the place where God's will is done. So don't just lightly throw around the words, love God, love others. So when we hear those words, when we live out those commands, we are to daily surrender our own little kingdoms to the Lordship of Christ. It's not just about being nice to people. It's about surrendering to Christ and making Him King of our lives. Jonathan Edwards says this, Seeking the kingdom of God is the chief business of the Christian life. What's wonderful is Jesus gives us the strength to do this. So will you surrender to the kingship of Jesus over your life? Will you, by loving God and loving others, surrender each day your kingdom so that you may enter into God's kingdom? Let us pray. Almighty God, we are not always so so good at loving you and loving others the way that we should. We let ourselves get in the way. We let our priorities get in the way. Lord, help us to surrender each day to your rule and to your reign. Let our little kingdoms die so that we can enter into your kingdom. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go with Jesus.